First Peter chapter 5, starting with verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace be all to you who are in Christ. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we close out this letter of 1 Peter. Father, we turn to the book of 1 Peter one more time. And we thank you for the truth that you have communicated thus far in this, in this book to us. The ways that you have equipped us in our faith. We thank you for the stories of encouragement that I have received from people who have been blessed by this book, and by, by your word, and by your truth. God, as we continue to face the world around us as strangers and aliens. We ask that you would continue to teach us what it means to suffer. And teach us now, this morning, out of 1 Peter, one last time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Two possible effects of suffering. Either, number one, you turn away from Jesus, or, number two, you turn to Jesus. Those are the only two effects of suffering. As a pastor, <clears throat> I have had the opportunity, which is often a painful opportunity, to walk with people who are suffering. I have seen people who have gone through suffering more trials than you can ever imagine, and they turn to Jesus as a result. That is the effect that their suffering has upon them. I've seen people lose loved ones. And I thought to myself as I'm holding my breath, oh, this is it. This is it. They're walking away. And they turn to Jesus as a result of their suffering. And I've seen the opposite happen. I've seen a young man who lost his wife. And I thought for sure he would turn to Jesus. And he turned away from Christ. And he ran. 
What I've never seen is anybody go through suffering and remain neutral. One or the other. And I think it's fitting as we close for us all to be challenged with this. When suffering strikes, which way are we going to turn? When suffering strikes, we often hold our breath wondering which way you are going to turn. Even as we look at our city right now, in some ways we're holding our breath wondering which way the people of Baltimore will turn. Our city has seen suffering. The month of May has seen 40 homicides. That's more than 19, or more since, the greatest number since 1990. A hundred shootings in the month of May. Even within our own church, one of our members was shot in his finger. Another member lost his cousin not too far from here. Suffering is real. It's around us. And there there are many people in our city right now who are suffering at one level or another. And as, as, as we're watching, we're kind of holding our breath, aren't we? Wondering which way will they turn? Will the people of Baltimore turn to Jesus or will the people of Baltimore turn away from Jesus? That is the question that we have yet to see the answer to. And as we look inwardly at our own lives, when suffering strikes, we must ask and we must be ready. This is our 16th sermon in the book of 1 Peter. That means 16 sermons focusing on suffering. In addition to that, we've been having a Sunday school class on suffering. So, hopefully, you are ready to suffer. Here's what we know. Number one, suffering is to be expected in the believer's life. Unlike the messages that you hear in a lot of churches, we're going to tell it to you as it is here at the Garden Church. Suffering should be expected in the believer's life. Secondly, there is no suffering that ever happens outside of God's will. God is the primary author of everything that happens. Thirdly, there is no suffering that you will face as a believer in your life that doesn't exist to refine your faith. And your faith is the vehicle which you ride into eternity. And so all suffering then helps prepare you for heaven. And the fourth thing that we know is that suffering in the believer's life is an opportunity for us to display the glory of God to those around us. As John Piper said, suffering doesn't often exist as as a result of evangelism as much as it exists as a means to evangelism. So as we think about suffering today, we've got to remember that the suffering that is in view here in 1 Peter is First of all, it does include all of the suffering that anybody would face, such as murder or tsunamis or natural disasters, etc. But there's actually more. The suffering in view here in 1 Peter has been a suffering focused on persecution. It's a suffering not just simply that naturally comes as a result of living a life, but a suffering that additionally comes as a result of being a Christian. So in the very thesis of First Peter is this idea, this understanding that Christians, being a Christian, means that you are a stranger and an alien in the world. It means that you are fundamentally part of a countercultural community. 
and that you're different. And if you're different, and if you're part of a countercultural community, there's going to be opposition. And where there's opposition of any kind, guess what you get? Suffering. And so it may be outright persecution, like we see in some parts of the world today. Christians taking bullets to the head. Or it may be the more subtle forms of persecution, which may be more appropriate and, and applicable for the world that we live in. Alienation because of Christian belief. A loss of community because of a biblical worldview that is maintained or convictions. A loss of opportunity because you refuse to walk away from the way of Jesus. Even this week, I heard a story from one of our members who stood for the weak and the vulnerable. And they were ostracized. They were hurt. Now, I, I, I hesitate to even give examples because suffering as a believer can come in a hundred different forms. And so whatever form it comes in in your life, I guarantee that there will be two effects that it will have on you. Either, number one, you will... What? Turn away from Jesus. And then B, you will turn to Jesus. Those are you two. I'm glad we got that now. Those are the, that's what will happen, all right? Those are your two guaranteed effects of suffering. Now what this means then is this. The suffering life is a life of spiritual warfare. It means that as long as we are strangers and aliens in this world, we are in a war. We are in a battle. And we need to be ready to fight. The book of Job is a, is a story in the Bible of one man who faced more suffering than you can dream of. He lost his livestock. He lost his business. He lost his children and their families. He lost his health, he lost his wealth, he lost his property, he lost his friends, and for a time, he even lost a good marriage. He lost it all. It is a story of suffering, yet one theologian said this, the story of Job is a story of an, of an epic war. Why does this theologian call the story of Job a story of an epic war? It's because this theologian knows that a life of suffering is a life of spiritual warfare. It's a war for your soul. Will you turn to Jesus or will you turn away from Jesus? And what we see today and what we know is that Job's story is also our story. And our story is a story of an epic war. So how shall we fight? How will you win? That's what we're going to talk about today. Briefly, I want to give you three battle positions that we need to take. Three ways to fight in order to win this battle. Are you with me? Number one, we are to fight with a restful reliance on God and you'll win. Fight with a restful reliance on God, and you will win. 
In other words, fight with humility. Look at verses 5 and 6. Likewise, he says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves in all, uh, all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the, what's the word there? Humble. Humble. The word younger in verse 5 most likely refers to the broader congregation as a whole. In the New Testament, if you remember last week, younger and older in the scriptures doesn't typically refer to physical maturity as much as it does spiritual maturity. And so as Peter has just addressed the elders, and he's exhorted them to a humble kind of leadership, you must lead with humility. Then he turns to the younger or to the congregation, I believe, is, is the turn that he makes here. And he's saying, and so for everyone, submit yourselves to the elders in a humble fashion. So first, what we see here is that humility is a submission to church leadership. Second, we see here that there is also a mutual kind of humility that we are to all submit to, to one another. So elders to members and members to other members and men to, 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 to women and women to men and, uh, and black to white and rich to poor and we can go on with the list. That we are to be a people who are clothed in humility. Now how does humility help us fight the spiritual war? Look at verse 7. Here's the climax of this, the, the, these levels of humility. Verse 7, we see this, this, this uh, explanation, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So humility, first of all, will not happen just simply when we realize we have problems. A lot of people who think they're humble are people who recognize that they've got a lot of issues and they, they, look very, they, they look down on themselves, they have a lot of self-disdain, and they can't take their eyes off of themselves. But C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Humility does not come when we are more like Martha who is busy in the kitchen, busy doing one thing after another, frantically trying to get done all things that we need to get done. Jesus said Martha is filled with anxiety. She's anxious about many things, but he said Mary has chosen the better part. We remember what Mary was doing. She was resting at Jesus' feet. You see, the very core of humility is to lay our anxieties at the feet of Jesus. The very core of humility is to cast our cares that we carry upon Jesus because we know that Jesus cares for us. And so then we are to be a church clothed in humility. Just as you put on your, your t-shirt this morning, we are to daily put on humility. What is the uniform that we are to go out and fight this spiritual battle in? It is the uniform of humility. Now again, let me ask this question, why, or how rather, does humility help us fight the battle? How in any way does having, having this sort of restful, almost passive reliance on God help us to be better warriors? Well, the key is right here in verse 6. 
So to humble yourselves, this is the third level of humility, by the way. We've got humility to church leadership, humility, mutual humility among everyone, and then this great grand level, this third level, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, the mighty hand of God here probably refers to the calamities that these people have been facing, meaning the hand that has been at work this entire time, meaning the providential stuff that God is bringing into our life, and it leaves us scratching our heads, and we don't know why we are going through what we are going through, yet at the same time, we're not willing to abandon our theology and, and, and say that God is not providential, but God is still in control, but why is God doing what God is doing in my life? Have you ever asked that question? See, humility and this first posture within our battle is to take this posture, this position of saying, I am humbly placing myself under the mighty hand of God. Meaning, whatever God brings into my life, I am going to be content. You see, there are very few people in this world that are content in life. We're not content in our marriage. We're not content in our singleness. We're not content with our job. We feel like we're behind in life. If I would have had more opportunities growing up, then maybe things would be different. If I grew up in a different place, or if I had more money, if I had more things, if I had a better upbringing, I mean, the list goes on. If I would have questioning our past, then maybe I would be different today. The call to war is to first recognize that you are under the mighty hand of God, meaning there is absolutely nothing that has ever happened in your life outside of God's divine power and orchestration, and all things work together for what? To them who love Him. Oh, sure, keep the drive. Family, we, we never let go of the drive to, to do better. But discontentment is the breeding ground for sin. Discontentment is walking onto the battlefield naked, ready to die. So we are a humble people. That is our first posture which we are to take. We trust Him. We trust that all things are working for our good, that everything that's happening in life is for our sanctification, that is preparing us for heaven. Now, if the first tactic in this battle is this position of rest, this sort of passive, like God is in control, I'm trusting Him, I'm going to humble myself to God's people, to each other, and I'm going to humble myself to God and all that He does in my life. The second position of battle, our second tactic, looks entirely different. It's the opposite. The second tactic we see here is this. We are to fight with a restless resistance against the devil. 
If you fight first with a restful reliance on God and second, a restless resistance against the devil, then you are on the winning path in this battle. Look at verse 8. Be sober-minded, he says. Be watchful, he says. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Sheep don't sleep when there is a lion on the prowl. A little boy turned off his bedroom lights and laid down in his bed. And after about 15 minutes, he heard a person stand up on the other side of the room who had been hiding. This person walked toward his bed. Do you think this little boy drifted off into a peaceful sleep? (laughs) The answer is no. Because I was that little boy. I'll tell you the rest of the story later. But I can tell you from experience that when you're trying to go to sleep and there is a, a lion on the prowl, nobody's sleeping. Your eyes are alert. Your mind is alert. Your eyes are wide open, watching, ready to fight. When a lion is on the prowl, shepherds don't sleep. When a lion is on the prowl, sheep don't sleep. You see, so we are resting in Christ. We are resting in all that God brings, yet we are also called to this restless awareness and alertness. Look at the words. He says to be sober-minded, which means have your mind together, which means you know, don't do anything that's going to alter your mind, that's going to allow yourself to fall into sin even more easily, but be sober-minded, be alert, be ready. What this means is that Satan is deceptive. Think of the way that, that, uh, that Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. He deceived them. It wasn't a frontal assault. He didn't come out like a goblin. But he was very deceptive. God had said, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. Satan said, did God really say, if you touch the fruit, you will die? You see what he did there? He twisted the word of God. That's all Satan does. You're struggling with sexual temptations of all kinds, and Satan says, did God really say? You're struggling with faithfulness in your marriage, and Satan says, did God really say? You're struggling with the temptation to look at porn, and God says, did God really say? You're struggling with the temptation to cheat, and, God, and Satan says, did God really say? You see what I'm saying? There's just this twisting of the Word of God that comes when we're trying to live a life of integrity and faithfulness, and He is deceptive. And we, friends, need to be aware of that. We need to know his tactics and to know that he is not going to come with a frontal assault, but it's more like guerrilla warfare. And he's going to come out of nowhere. And he's going to blind you like a lure at the end of a fisherman's line. 
Satan is flashy. It looks good. It looks fine. It's deceptive until you bite. But unlike the fish that bites the line, we go willingly. Look at this next, this next aspect of, of this, this deception of Satan and this enemy that is out to get us. Secondly, we see that the devil is not only deceptive, but he is also devouring. These words here, roaring, that describes a hungry beast. Calling him a lion. That means that he has a relentless energy. So a hungry beast with a relentless energy is not an animal that you want to be around and pet. He will, it says, devour you. Now that word devour is the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a word that means to swallow up. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses that same word in relation to the way that Jesus' victory swallows up death. So how complete is the victory of Christ over death? It is complete. And in the same way, the destruction that Satan brings into our lives as he deceives us and as we move toward him is complete. He devours us. He swallows us. Unlike the fish who's fighting against the real. Satan has devoured our ambition. He has devoured our thoughts. He has devoured our will. And we jump into the lion's mouth willingly. Friends, this should lead us all to look into the mirror and say, do I get it? Do I get it? Where am I being deceived? Where is Satan about to devour my life? How is Satan about to devour my marriage? How is Satan about to to devour my kids? How is Satan about to devour my integrity at work? How is Satan about to devour our church? In what ways might I be deceived? What is his method? It's simple. His method is to simply assimilate us back into the mainstream culture. To just bring us back to the sinful worldview, the unbiblical worldview, the culture that is around us. New Testament theologian put it this way. He said, the only way for Christians to truly escape opposition in this world is to completely abandon the gospel and the community that the gospel shapes. What he means is this. Just by nature of being a Christian, of being a follower of Jesus, it moves you into this place of being radical in this world, countercultural in this world. And it comes with it opposition of all kinds. The only way to fully escape the opposition that comes with being a Christian is to abandon the gospel and to abandon the community that is shaped by the gospel. And in many ways in our world we are witnessing in many churches and in many denominations 20 years of Satan's devouring. 
as men and women who once were part of churches that believed the gospel have completely assimilated back into culture and have been devoured. Well, this is why this next verse is so important. Look at verse 9. We see that the devil can be resisted. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So you might remember uh, James chapter 4, verse 7, which says, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. The call here is to keep resisting. I know that as temptation comes and as the devouring comes, there is a chain that is around your neck that is pulling, that is choking you, that is cutting into your flesh, and you're looking at the links of this chain, and you say to yourself, I don't think I can actually resist this. This is too heavy. This is too strong. The encouragement that we get here is this. If you resist long enough, the chain will break. The chain will break. Jesus was tempted three times in the wilderness for our benefit to show that when the devil is resisted, he leaves. He flees. This doesn't mean that temptations won't at some point come back, but we're no longer bound to it. We're no longer enslaved and chained, recognizing that others in the world are going through the same trials that we are going through helps us to resist this, to know that others are facing the same kind of suffering that we are. And so we go in with our eyes wide open, knowing that the devil is deceptive, that he will devour us, and that we can resist him. Now this leads us to our final position of this battle, and that is this. Number three, fight with a real hope in the future and you will win. Fight with a real hope in the future. Look at verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Do you remember the story of Joshua and the battle of Jericho? If you grew up in Sunday school, I guarantee you you sang that song at some point, right? He walked around the, 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 the city of Jericho how many times? Seven times. It's quiet. That seventh time, for those of you that grew up in Sunday school, what happened? They were, they were to shout. Shout of victory. Look at what Joshua says in Joshua. Chapter 6, verse 16. He says, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now, this is remarkable because this was a massive fortified city that they had to get through in order to enter the land, and it looked impossible. And Joshua is saying, shout with a voice of triumph because the Lord has given you the city. Now, in this moment, were the walls still up around Jericho? Yes, they were in that moment. So we could have been tempted if we were there to not believe. I don't think so. Those walls are still there. But we trust. The battle has been won. You see, as we go into this life and into this world of 
spiritual warfare in the midst of being strangers and aliens suffering in a foreign land, what we must recognize is that this verse is true. After we suffer for a little while. Now a little while, unfortunately, doesn't mean a year or two. It doesn't mean ten years. And then God's going to hook you up. No, a little while is a reference to actually your entire life. And for those of you who are suffering, you say, this doesn't feel like a little while. I've been suffering now for two years. And how dare you say that this is just a little while. But we've got to pull back a little bit. Think of things in light of eternity. In eternity, after you've been there for, let's say, 80 years, a lifetime on earth, how many more years do you have to go? Let's say you've been there for a million years. How many more years left do you have in eternity? A million? Two mil- okay, so you've been there for two million years now. How many years do you have? And what's crazy is we're using time to try to understand something like eternity. We don't think about eternity very much. You know why? Because it boggles our mind and we get this little sick feeling in the pit of our stomach because we can't understand it. Especially when we begin to think of those outside of Christ. Where Jesus said, if you reject me now, I will reject you then. In James chapter 4, verse 14, James says, what is your life but a vapor? It's here for a little while and then it's gone. Friends, what happens in this vapor determines your eternity. Don't you see this? How we, how we live this life determines eternity. And so we are faced with suffering. Are we going to give in to this war? and walk away from our only hope, and that is faith in the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to make a way for us. Are we going to turn away from our hope of eternity? Or are we going to, as strangers and aliens, continue on as sojourners, as exiles, and remain faithful and win this battle? He says, after you have suffered a little while, look at the next words, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you. Do you get like the whole God, excuse me, centeredness of all of this? God is doing this. God is, will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you to him be the dominion, which means power, forever and ever. Amen. Do you know this God? First Peter is not a human-centered book. This is a, this is a God-centered book. This is a book that has God as our Savior. This is a book that has God as the founder of our faith, our elector, our king who is sovereign 
over everything that happens in our life. This is a book about God who is our hope. This is a book about God who is our defender. This is a book about God who gives us the grace and the power that we need to stand firm every day. And this is a book about God who has the power to bring you home. You see, one day, Jesus will return to this earth and our sojourning will come to an end. Those who have died in Christ, meaning they have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a life of righteousness for them, who died on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins, they have hoped in Him, they have trusted in Him. Those who are in Christ not only have the promise of being forgiven now, but they also have the promise of one day being raised with Christ in the new creation. When heaven crashes to earth and the exile is over and all things are made new and we live forever with God enjoying the riches of His grace, friends, are you in Him? When suffering strikes, you will know. Because those who are in Him will turn to Him will cling to Him. Those who are in Him will have a restful reliance in Christ. Those who are in Him when suffering strikes will continue to have a restless resistance against the devil. And those who are in Him will have a real hope in the future. Peter wrote this letter to churches that were scattered across the globe. They were facing persecution and sufferings of all kinds. And we see in his closing that Peter wrote this letter to encourage them. That they may be encouraged. That they may stand firm in their faith. That they may stand firm in the truths that God has presented in this letter. And God gave us this letter today. As strangers and aliens. As exiles. Living in a foreign land. He gave this letter to us to encourage us in our faith. So that we might stand firm in the face of all trials, and in the face of all suffering. Our life is a story of an epic war. As we are strangers, and we are aliens suffering in a foreign land, we look forward to that day when the King will come to redeem all things. And in this day, now, as we wait, we stand firm. Stand firm. Immovable. Strong. Ready to fight. Humble. Resting in Christ. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we could be in this letter one last time. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. The reality that this is an open invitation to all people from all walks of life, to find comfort and to find hope in Jesus Christ, who died in our place so that strangers and aliens may be made brothers and sisters of one another and children of you, our Heavenly Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.